You're listening to a special Drishti Point podcast. I'm Farah Nasrali, and I'm here with Heidi Hirdaya. And we're doing our second interview on a series on the Bhagavad Gita. And for the first interview that we did, we talked a lot about the concept of surrender. And actually, you ended with a beautiful metaphor that I'm wondering if people hadn't heard the first interview, if you could start off with that metaphor for the second interview. Sure. Um, well, I'm happy to be here again. And uh, we ended our last interview with the metaphor about surrender, um, with the ego being uh, sort of having its umbrella up. And so I had said that the grace is always showering, but if you have your ego umbrella up, then you actually can't receive the shower of the grace. Mm -hmm. So the actual um, metaphor for surrender is bringing down your ego umbrella so that you can allow the grace, which is always showering, uh, into your life and into your heart. That's a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and uh, one I think that definitely sets the topic for today, which is bhakti. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you could start off by talking about what I've heard um, is referred to as the nirguna or sarguna aspects of the divine. Mm-hmm. If you could explain for our listeners what those means and how they relate to the concept of bhakti. Okay, well, um, I'll start with what bhakti is, because maybe some people have never even heard the word bhakti before, and so it translates as devotion, and uh, everyone knows what devotion is. In some way or another, we're all devoted to something in our lives or in our beings, and um, when you start reading the yogic scriptures, then they do talk about what's called sagun brahm, and near Gun Brahm. Brahm is, um, is the cosmic being, and Gun means quality, and Sa means with. So Sagun means with qualities or with form, mm-hmm. and near Gun means without qualities or without form. So when we're talking about Bhakti, the question that's often asked is, is it better to devote yourself to Sagun Brahm, which is God with qualities, or near Gun Brahm, or God without qualities. Mm-hmm. So that would be: is it is it better to devote yourself to a teacher who represents qualities that are, are of what you think of as godly or divine, or to devote yourself to the abstract concept of God? Right. And even if you say don't have a teacher, um, then you might be devoting yourself to whatever form of God seems to have shown up in your life or in your encounters yeah so um so ultimately what what i would say if if that's a question is it better you ask me is it better to devote yourself to god with qualities or god without qualities well isn't that the question that um arjuna asks yeah. krishna in the bhagavad gita that's exactly what arjuna asks krishna in the 12th chapter which is the chapter on bhakti mm-hmm. and the first thing he says is Oh Krishna, is it better to be devoted to you with form or without form? And and Krishna says it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> the point isn't so much what you're devoted to, but the point is your devotion. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you're devoted to a God that you imagine with form or imagine without form, because really as a human being, what else are you going to use except your imagination? The power with which you are devoting yourself to that divinity, that's your own power. And that's the divinity in you. 
So even though it looks as if you're devoting yourself to something outside, mm -hmm. the power with which you are able to devote yourself has to be coming from some source. So whether you're adopting, you know, in the Gita there are basically four paths which are outlined and described, and bhakti is one of them, and the others are karma, which is action, and jnana, which is knowledge, and dhyan, which is meditation, and then bhakti, which is devotion. And in all of those paths, what's common is you've got a subject, mm -hmm. you've got the action, so in this case you've got the devotee, the action is going to be devotion, and your object is what you would maybe call your ishtevta, or the, the one whom you're devoting yourself to. In, uh, in knowledge, you've got the one who's knowing, uh, you've got the knowledge, and then you've got that which is known. And in meditation, you've got the meditator, the act of meditating, and then the goal of meditation. So what's, what's common to all of these paths is the existence of a trio. Mm -hmm. The objective of all of these paths is the dissolution of that trio. Mm -hmm. So whichever path you adopt, in this case we're talking about bhakti, the point of all bhakti is that the devotee should dissolve into Bhagavan, which is God. Mm -hmm. So the distinction between the, the action and the doer and the object dissolves. That's right. It dissolves through, through the, the sincere and one-pointed adopting of that path. Mm -hmm. That's why I think Krishna is saying to Arjuna, it doesn't matter if you're devoted to me with form or without form. The point is, if with your sincere one-pointed attention, you focus on me, since I know there's absolutely no difference between me and you, but you don't know that, through your love for me, through your devotion to me, through your surrender of that individual sense of I, which is the separate subject, mm -hmm. to me, the object, this whole trio, which is an illusion that looks like you devoting yourself to me, that's going to dissolve and you will see that you're nothing but me. I see. So the, the act of devotion works to uh, diminish this umbrella ego. That's right. Uh-huh. And, and whether it's the act of devotion or the act of service or uh, action or karma or... That's right. Any successful sadhana... Right. Any successful spiritual practice should result in at least a diminishing of the ego consciousness and ultimately a dissolving of the ego consciousness. And since, let's say, Vyas, who wrote the Gita, understood that there are different types of um, natures of human beings, right, in human mm -hmm. minds and hearts, so he prescribed all kinds of different approaches, but basically the result of each approach is the same. Now, I've heard that in this particular um, age that we're living in, the practice of bhakti is particularly helpful. Mm. And, and I've also heard that it can be the shortest way mm -hmm. um, to achieving that, the dissolution of the, that duality. That's right. Um, so can you speak a little bit about why it's so relevant? Sure. Um, my thought would be that uh, I notice in the Western world in particular, um, and in many countries who have adopted the ways of the Western world, that uh, the deity is the intellect. 
the deity mm -hmm. is the rational mind mm -hmm. and um, if that's you're very interesting yeah that's I noticed that that seems to be the governing body therefore we've adopted science as the God and anything that can be scientifically proven is given um, the respect the admiration and the regard that you would give an Ishtavta, for example, mm -hmm. right? So, and that's just my own personal observation going back and forth, is that I do notice that the rational intellect, which is meant to be the servant of the spirit, I think Albert Einstein quoted, said this, it's a beautiful quote from him, that the rational mind is meant to be the servant of the higher power, um, but it's turned out that, that man has made um, the rational intellect, the higher power. <laughs> and so there's a bit of a correction that's needed there. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I think that the adoption of something that kind of overrides the, the importance of the rational intellect mm -hmm. and places a great emphasis on intelligent faith. I, I'm going to use the word intelligent faith because I think that the... Uh, view about faith can often be with blind in front of it, right? Mm -hmm. We often think that faith means you have to be blind, and blind means you don't have to think, you don't have to ask questions, you don't have to um, use your intelligence, you should just blindly have faith in something without actually asking anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't, I, I, and I don't think that that's very appealing to intelligent people, because mm -hmm. how can you shut down your questions? So you do need to ask your questions and you need to expand your intelligence and you need to hone your intelligence and you need to strengthen your intelligence. Mm -hmm. But the highest intelligence is going to recognize the oneness of all things. And once that oneness of all things at the level of the source is recognized by the highest intelligence, how can you not have faith in that in which the whole universe is resting? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about faith because you mentioned just now if you if you see that oneness or if you experience that oneness then you how can you not have faith but how does one before that experience exactly uh, develop faith exactly so um, yes because that pre assumes that you've already <laughs> um, accepted that there is something to have faith in and what if you doubt that Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and the nature of the human intellect is doubtful really absolutely it's its nature so it's uh, when people have doubts it's not it that's a very um, I've never heard that mm -hmm. Th that's part of its nature mm -hmm. it is its nature Mm -hmm. Its nature is doubtful. It's made of doubt. It's a factory of doubts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it works in a the, the human mind um, field works as a wavering entity mm -hmm. and doubts are the wavering nature of the mind okay. so faith and bhakti is accepting that the nature of the mind is wavering and using a technique or a path to stabilize the wavering nature of the mind mm -hmm. once the wavering nature of the mind and heart get stabilized in one thing so that's the principle behind bhakti Mm -hmm. Right, is that you've got one thing that you're putting your attention on, and that's helpful simply because it's one thing, right? Otherwise, the nature of the mind is to put its attention on many things. Yes, 
and Absolutely. and we think you know when if you come here that was the big word I heard when I came back to Canada ten years ago from India everyone was talking about being focused <laughs> I can't focus I need to focus I'm not focused and I thought it's interesting the choice of word that people use the word focus focus means that your attention beam is able to remain with one thing yes so yes. the challenge in a society where so much is available on so many levels even just to go into a supermarket and buy toothpaste there's like seriously 52 choices of toothpaste you know is it going to be foaming is it going to be with gel is it going to have fluoride is it going <laughs> to i mean there's so many choices Mm -hmm. So the poor intellect is having to make decisions every moment and exercising that many-pointed nature of the intellect. So that many-pointed nature of the intellect, that outward movement of the intellect, is called vyutan. Vyutan vritti, which means, vritti means movement, waves, mm -hmm. and vyutan is the outward movement. Now, what all of these yogic techniques, including bhakti, underst they understand that and are... Um, offering a way for that intellect to become one-pointed. Mm -hmm. So you first have to make the intellect concentrated. Mm -hmm. So even bhakti is using the intellect, mm -hmm. right? It's using mm -hmm. the heart and the intellect with the understanding that it's going to be scattered. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a loving being, you know that if you've got one beloved, you want to pour all your attention, all your love, all your care, all your praise, all your value into that one beloved. Mm -hmm. So God, who's who we say is both nirgun and a sagun, right? Mm -hmm. Both with qualities and without qualities. That God is worthy of being given the ultimate value. So first, you have to use your intellect to discriminate what is worthy of receiving all of your attention. Mm -hmm. If you're pouring all of your attention into your newly bought car, right, mm -hmm. you're giving it devotion, <laughs> right? So we're, uh, it sounds like you're saying we're sometimes devoted to the wrong things. Yes. Because we don't use our, our is it our buddhi, our faculty of buddhi? To understand what changes and what doesn't change. Mm -hmm. So what I was going to say about the car is, if you're taking all of your devotion and, and energy um, and attention and pouring it into your car, it's going to be okay for a couple of years, but we all know that a car can only last for so long. Mm -hmm. So once the car breaks down, you're either going to go and get a new car and continue to put your attention on that which changes mm -hmm. and remain therefore dissatisfied, mm -hmm. or at some point you're going to think, I need to put my attention on that which doesn't change because that's what's going to keep me free from the fear of death, mm -hmm. which is the ultimate wave in the mind and heart of change. The ultimate change is the passing of the body. So before that happens, and to save myself from all of the unfavorable emotions that surround that passing, which includes you know, incredible fear that mm -hmm. most people experience and fear of change, mm -hmm. which is just as much fear of death as the passing of the body, then I need to stabilize my wavering intellect in one thing. And that one thing should be something that doesn't change so that I'm actually investing my love, right, in an object that is going to bring me the biggest return for my investment. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be God. 
-hmm. because God doesn't change God doesn't die God doesn't betray mm -hmm. right that God cannot be placed in any of the categories that are changing therefore when we say God is sagum it's still partial however God manifests as a changing form to appeal to a human vision because you have to be able to relate mm -hmm. that's why if you go to India you'll see you know paintings of God posters of God statues of God but they all understand that this is just so that a human being can relate to the power that that form represents mm -hmm. so ultimately when that sense of I or love or heart or knowledge or whatever you have adopted as your means has dissolved and you've brought your umbrella of ego down because that's the whole thing that keeps you separate from the sense of, of being one with God whatever mm -hmm. you call God to be mm -hmm. once that ahankar dissolves um, through your devotion so that's that's your benefit mm -hmm. is that all of your devotion to that higher power brings for you greater joy greater ease greater peace of mind greater love in your heart greater sense of connectedness with all things because your ahankar which is keeping you separate from all of that is being offered through the means of bhakti to that higher power which in turn is offering you that egolessness and through all of that your ego umbrella is being brought down so what you experience is oneness with the divine which is your true nature but you don't experience it because of your ego umbrella being held up mm -hmm. now what are the particular uh, practices or sadhanas of bhakti yoga um, yeah there are many delightful ones <laughs> um, one is chanting, mm -hmm. uh, kirtan, and that, that's something that I've done a lot of in my own practice, and it's beautiful. It just um, completely bypasses the intellect. Mm -hmm. um, although if you understand what you're singing, then there's a sense of, of knowing who and what you're singing to and what's happening in your own nervous system. Um, chanting opens channels the way hatha yoga does, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it opens channels to the in, heart. Yeah, and and higher and channels to the divine. Mm -hmm. So you're you're actually um, singing, especially if you're singing in Hindi and Sanskrit. Um, mm -hmm. And I know there must be other languages also, which are reflective of that divine space. My own experiences with Hindi and Sanskrit, and I know that when I sing in those languages, the vibrations of the Hindi and the Sanskrit actually are designed to open subtler channels in the human nervous system towards the divine mm -hmm. so it works whether you understand the meaning or not mm -hmm. right it's just you, you're just scientifically applying those sounds and you'll start to feel something very blissful mm -hmm. um, and singing uh, itself opens up channels we all know when we sing we feel good mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so so that there's that so chanting is definitely one way um, puja which is the act of offering flowers and fruit um, and s also singing mm -hmm. and praying to your Ishtevta. So um, you could make an altar and have uh, either a, a representation of your Ishtevta or anything that appeals to you, um, a photo or a statue, whatever. Um, and then daily with intent and with love in your heart, you're offering to that 
higher power in the in the form of whatever you have chosen as your as your deity so um in india every house you go to has got a puja Mm -hmm. there's an altar um some are more elaborate than others but everywhere you go it's just so common to see the altar right Mm -hmm. and customarily you're offering flowers and fruit Mm-hmm. Um, and those go in front of your deity. Um, there are ceremonies that you can do. Um, one ceremony is called a haven, where uh, you it's a fire ceremony, and there are definite herbs that you put into the fire, and ghee, and a mantra that you sing, the Gayatri mantra, which you sing 108 times, and all of that creates a sense of purification mm-hmm. in the nervous system and the mind. So all of all of these means... And since we're talking about bhakti, it create purification. And purification of what? Purification of the sense of otherness. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what you want in bhakti is something which the Gita calls ananya bhakti. Anya means other. Ananya means free from otherness. No other. So ananya bhakti is, is the objective of all bhakti which is that the sense of otherness, which is inherent in the human intellect with its wavering nature, that that sense of otherness based on the waves mm-hmm. should completely be dissolved. And there is no sense of other. So once I am not other than the God that I've spent all these years devoting myself to as if he's other than me, his gift to me is going to be the lack of the sense of otherness. Mm-hmm. So what am I offering to him? My sense of otherness. Mm-hmm. And because he's all accepting, right? And I'm saying he because we're making we're personifying it at this point, right? right. Um, or she, because he or she is all accepting. That sense of otherness is accepted with every thought that I offer, with every flower that I offer, with every fruit that I offer. In chapter 9 of the Gita, which we're talking about the Gita, Krishna tells Arjun that even if someone offers just a smile to me, if he just offers a flower or a fruit, I accept it with great pleasure (laughs) because he exclusively loves me. So throughout the whole Gita, that theme of bhakti is prevalent. Even underneath all of the jnana that Krishna is offering to Arjun, Mm -hmm. it's all based on the fact that Arjun loves Krishna so specially. Mm-hmm. And because of his ability to perceive Krishna and know that he can free him from the sense of otherness, which is assailing him, therefore keeping him from doing what he has to do, in this case fight the war, he has selected with his highly discriminating sense, Krishna, to help him in this. Krishna, recognizing that his own devotee has been able to recognize him and see him, then showers his love on Arjun, so there's a kind of mystical, esoteric, special vision that's going on. It's like a special recognition. Mm-hmm. So, to say it's esoteric is a bit misleading because it's all there for the taking. It's not as if it's selective, but it appears selective because only a few people with their inclination towards looking for something higher are going to actually put their attention and energy into making that their sole pursuit. Right. And Arjun exemplifies that. Mm -hmm. Because of that, Krishna will shower his special knowledge on him because he has asked for it and he's open to it. 
his umbrella is that much down that he can hear what Krishna has to say mm-hmm. and receive it. Yeah. <clears throat> so you mentioned uh, kirtan chanting and puja offerings, and is there um, is there a way that these kinds of things we can integrate into our our everyday life, like even for people who do maybe have an altar in their room or in their home, mm-hmm. that are there other ways it can be integrated into, you know, um, when we eat meals, for example, mm-hmm. uh, making an offering, or when we, um, s- how we see other people and how we interact with other people. Yeah, um, certainly when you eat meals, you can say a prayer or just close your eyes and remember just just remembering where everything is coming from is your act of devotion mm-hmm. that what cuts us off from that sense of devotion is is that sense of otherness that sees everything in manifestation as being separate from the source so whatever means you use chanting to remember the source offering flowers or fruit to your deity which means you start your day or you end your day or somewhere in the middle of your day at any point in your day your attention is intentionally being turned towards the source Mm -hmm. of your existence you're remembering that you can't even take a breath without the grace of that higher power and and what you mentioned earlier in terms of the point of having certain established rituals that you do with intention and with consciousness mm. um, would be to bring the mind to that steadiness and one-pointedness on a regular basis. Yes, and regular is an important word. Mm-hmm. So any practice that you undertake, the importance of that practice um, is the regularity of it. So if you're meditating, it's important that you meditate regularly. Mm-hmm. If, if you're chanting it's important that you chant regularly and if you can't do it regularly it's important that you do it irregularly but it's important that you do it right Mm -hmm. because you'll get the benefit Mm -hmm. and um, I also liked your question about how you could bring that sense of devotion into your interactions with people Mm -hmm. and so the phrase that's very common has become very common in the West now the namaste Mm -hmm. which um, which everyone in India greets each other with the namaste um, actually means that I salute the God within you mm-hmm. so to to retain that sense when you're talking to what appears to be an other mm-hmm. that they're not actually other they only appear other because of the quality of their body mm-hmm. that the light in their eyes is the same light that's in my eyes and the being that's making them think and speak and act and be and that's guiding everything in their life is the same being, the same higher power that's guiding me. Mm-hmm. So at the source, however you want to call that divine being, from whatever denomination, and whether a person is aware of it or not, all beings are the same at the source. So if I can remember that, then whoever I'm speaking to will get the sense that I don't see them as other. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens for me, how I get the benefit, is that then their defensive ego mechanism isn't up. Mm-hmm. They get that, that ego gets melted through the sense of oneness. So we get to actually connect in a higher space of, first of all, feeling a trust for each other, 
a sense that this person is for me and supports me and knows me as something other than just the surface level, right? Mm -hmm. Whether a person's conscious of it or not, everyone feels it. Just like all animals will go immediately towards a being of oneness. Mm -hmm. All children will go immediately towards a being of oneness. Now, mm -hmm. you can make a whole theory about it on the intellect level afterwards, but what is it in them that recognize, recognizes a saint, you know, mm -hmm. or a saintly being, or those qualities of non-harming? Mm -hmm. So that knower that's in the children and in the animals, that's in every being. And if I know that that's there in you, and it's the same that's in me, then when I'm speaking to you, whatever your attributes are, aren't really important because that's not where we connect. Mm -hmm. So that becomes my devotion to your highest self. Mm -hmm. And another way of, um, another facet of your devotion. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. And another way that you can bring that into your daily life because we're interacting with people every day <laughs> yeah definitely yeah there was a question I had but I've forgotten it now um, and, and it would now I remember it it was related to the the channels that are open and the um, power of the language and the power of mantras for example can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I can speak about Sanskrit because that's a language that I'm a bit more familiar with singing. And, um, and Sanskrit's just an incredibly beautiful language. Um, the, the oldest known source language um, is called Proto-Indo-European. It's no longer a spoken language and it sits at the root of Sanskrit, which is that the reason I'm quoting Proto-Indo-European is because Sanskrit is the um, closest known existing language to Proto-Indo-European, which is a very, very pure language that, that all um, Roman languages and many other languages, which I'm not totally familiar with, mm -hmm. trace back at their root to Proto-Indo-European. Sanskrit is the closest existing language to that today. It's not no longer a spoken language, mm -hmm. um, but all scriptures, almost all scriptures, are in in India are written in Sanskrit. Um, the sounds of Sanskrit are designed to open up these channels that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So the and human it's the vibration. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if if I sing something for you in Sanskrit, often the the last sound of a phrase will be the mmm sound. Mm -hmm. Now the mmm sound corresponds to this crown chakra at the top of the head. So if you're just humming mmm, you'll start to feel it mm -hmm. as, as a kind of very pleasing vibration at the top of your head. And the top of your head is the center that sort of opens to the divine. So they did that on purpose. <laughs> 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 they knew that if they made you sing that sound, something very pleasant would happen in your nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, so all of the sounds of Sanskrit are designed in, cor in direct correspondence with the human nervous system. And the understanding 
that there are 72 million subtle channels in the human nervous system, all of which join at a central unseen nerve that goes up the, the spine, which is called the Sushmana channel. Mm -hmm. And those people who study yoga know about the Kundalini energy. The Kundalini moves through the Sushmana channel. So the purpose of all practices, whether it's devotion, whether it's knowledge, whether it's meditation, and whether it's action, is if you're intentionally concentrating your attention, you get the benefit of opening the Sushmana channel. So it's extremely scientific. When the Sushmana channel opens, then that divine energy which you yourself are, that you look like you're directing outward through your natural use of outward energy, right? So the means are prescribed for that. But actually, you're the God that you're devoted to. And that sounds blasphemous. But the human nervous system, all systems, right, are made of some energy. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to call it God, you can you can just call it consciousness. Mm -hmm. But some conscious force is what is allowing our human nervous system to breathe, to move, to see, to act. And when that conscious force is removed, the system no longer functions. Mm -hmm. Now, what's that power that that's in control of all of that? With all of our scientific discoveries and with all of our highly developed intellectual pursuits, we cannot determine when that power decides to withdraw itself. No. <laughs> so these sound, by singing these sounds, these this channel opens. Yes, that's right. And when this channel opens, the sense of otherness gets purified. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it all ties in. So can you sing some verses from sure. the Bhagavad Gita so that we can uh, listen Sure. Some Sanskrit. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I can sing seven verses from chapter two, mm -hmm. and um, so I'll sing those for you now. Yainam beti hantaram yashchainam manyate hatam ubhautau navijani to nayam hanti na hanyate. Na jayate mriyate vakadachin Nayam bhutvaha bhavitaha vanabhuyaha Ajo nityaha shashwato ayam purano Nahanyate hanyamane sharire Vedaha vinashinam nityam Yainam ajam avyayam Katam sa purushaha partakam Bhatayati hantikam Vasansi jirnani atavihai Navani grahanati naroparani Katasharirani vihai jirnani Anyani sanyati navani dehi Nainam chindanti shastrani Nainam dahati pavakaha Nachainam kledayanti hapo Nashoho shayati marutaha 
seven verses from chapter 2 which talk about the essential nature of the self and being free from the sense of any destruction or death the self cannot be cut by water wet by cut by weapons wet by water dried by wind um, it is indestructible Arjun you have to realize this the self is um, totally free and when you leave the body it is just as if you're taking off clothes but that which remains is pure and free and forever and basically all of those seven verses are just reiterating again and again the indestructible nature of the self and that that's what we are in identity mm. beautiful thank you yeah they are beautiful and my teacher had added um, to the one verse Nainam Chintanti Shastrani which means the self cannot be cut by weapons, wet by water, dried by wind um, you're indestructible it also cannot be affected by words and their meaning and that was added as well because we experience sometimes the effect of bad interactions as if a weapon had come to us right? Mm, so mm -hmm. yeah well, I think that's a, a beautiful point that we, which we can end, is uh, just with the um, memory of those verses still singing in us. And that that's the self that we're devoted to, whether um, we approach it from the north, the south, the east, or the west, that the being that we devote ourselves to, which is actually our true nature, um, doesn't change and is worthy of our attention and our sense of value. Thank you. Thank you very much.